Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist, in the magical mystery tour called Life, Matthew DiBiase. Tonight's guest is author Rick Allen, who is making his literary debut with his newly released book, Inside Pitch, a chronicle of the ill-fated Seattle Pilots, who were an American League expansion team that lasted one season in 1969 before moving to Milwaukee to become today's Milwaukee Brewers. Rick has been a lifelong baseball fan and presently resides in the Pacific Northwest. Rick, how and when did you conceive the idea of writing about the Seattle Pilots? <laughs> well, I, I've got a list of about 30 books that I'd like to write, and this one was nowhere on the list. Wow. <laughs> I was in Africa on a tour with my wife, and sitting at our table in the tour group, a small tour group, was this guy telling funny stories about his time in baseball and I asked him who you know who where was he in baseball and he said he was with the Seattle Pilots and he was telling these funny administrative stories and I I'd read Ball Four and thought it was hilarious I think it's a fabulous book and, and which is about mostly about the players of the 1969 Pilots and his stories were just as funny about the the guys behind the curtain in the front office so I said well you know when we get back to the states can I you know, follow up with you because these are, these are some great stories. So we met in Arizona. I'm in Arizona in the winter for spring training, and that's where he lives, Bob Schoenbacher. And as we talked, the first time we met, he mentioned another guy that he worked with named Jim Kittlesby. And I know Jim Kittlesby, but I never knew that he worked for the pilot. Wow. So it was a, com it was a complete, complete coincidence. And it turns out that Jim was also in Arizona, so the three of us got together for about two years. And, you know, every time I went down there, we got together and, and the book just wrote itself, basically. So so besides the the gentleman that you just mentioned, who else were the movers and shakers that who made the Seattle Pilots possible? Well, mostly it was the Soriano brothers, Max and Dewey and Max. They were uh, administrators of the Seattle, first called the Seattle Rainiers, Triple A team later called the Seattle Angels because they were the California Angels AAA team. And they had stewarded as, uh, as baseball in Seattle over many, many years, very successfully. And uh, they, I mean, Seattle had led the minor leagues or were close to the top in the minor leagues and attendance for almost 15 straight years before the pilots came to Seattle. So they came into the, the whole thing thinking, wow, you know, this is a great baseball town. We've got great AAA teams. We really want to make this happen. We want Seattle to go big time. You know, in 1962, Seattle had had the, the World's Fair with Elvis Presley and, you know, going to the World's Fair and all that kind of stuff, the Space Needle and everything. So it was kind of becoming big league. And this was an attempt to bring big league baseball. And they were too. That Dewey Soriano in 1955 was named by the Sporting News as the minor league executive of the year. So it's not like they didn't know anything about baseball. They did, but they found themselves behind the eight ball really quickly on this deal. In what way? I mean, uh, okay, uh, I mean, you, it was a, a great minor league attendance. Uh, in what way? How did they find themselves behind an eight ball? What happened? Well, what happened was when they began to negotiate with uh, Major League Baseball to bring a team to Seattle, they weren't part of the moneyed Seattle interest. They were they were they were hardworking 
uh, actually uh, people in the maritime industry, but they were also deep, deep baseball fans, but they weren't really rich. And so they thought, well, we're going to need three or four, two or three or four years to kind of build this. So what we'll do is buy a minor league team to run independently so that we can, you know, understand all the things that we have to do to make this run instead of having some major league team uh, do it for us. So we'll buy this team. And, and it, then we'll have a two or three year startup time. And at the time, Major League Baseball said, that, that'll work for us. We're, we're, we expect to bring a team there in 1971, 1972. But then Charlie O. Finley took the team from Kansas City out of Kansas City and to Oakland in 1968 over the objections of, of Major League Baseball. But he said, it's coming hell or white, how or water, I'm, I'm taking the team. So Kansas City had a very uh, powerful United States senator, Stuart Symington, who basically said, look, if you guys don't put a team in here next year, we're going to get rid of your exemption, you know, your, your, uh, the ability to control your own uh, leagues and take away your kind of unusual exemption, and then you're going to have a whole different game. So Major League Baseball panicked and said, okay, instead of 1971, this is right in the middle of when they're finishing the negotiations with Soriano's, you're going to have to have a team in 1969. So they had a one-year startup period, which was totally beyond their capabilities. But they were already so far in it. They, they wanted the team, and Major League Baseball wanted them. So they, they made the deal, and that was, the, that was the beginning of the end right there. They just were not ready. They weren't well-funded yet. There wasn't a lot of support that they had lined up. And then they had a stadium that was built in 1936. Part of the original deal was they were supposed to have a stadium before they would have a major league franchise. And they were working on putting a new stadium in Seattle, something called Forward, uh, Forward Thrust Levy. And that, and that passed and eventually built a kingdom. But instead of 1972, it ended up being 1976 before it was ever finished because of local politics. So they, they were in an old stadium. The stadium was falling apart. The start of the season was rainy. The, the, uh, you know, they didn't have any other revenues. They didn't have any revenue sharing. Part of the deal was Major League Baseball wasn't going to get any revenue sharing for three years. The city was charging them rent on a stadium that was in terrible shape, and the city agreed to fix but didn't. Uh, it was just one, one thing after another. Well, so these two guys that are my sources for this book, we're both administrators for that team working in the offices during the whole time. And they were watching every, all these things go wrong, including when they bought the California Angels AAA team. California said, well, we'll send along with our team, our, our uh, vice president for minor league operations, Marvin Milk, and he can be your general manager because he was with us in California when we uh, we're an expansion team. That'll, that looked really good on the resume. He was he had been the California Angels guy running the uh, Seattle Angels or ha having the Seattle Angels report to him already. So he was familiar with Seattle and the Angels. And it looked good on paper, but he got there and he was a total disaster. So it was just one, one thing after another. And of course, Bob Schoenbacher had gotten a job with the team as a 19-year-old guy, 
didn't even have his accounting degree yet, and he was the uh, chief financial officer for the AAA team. So Seattle thought, well, we're going to have to hire a more experienced guy. They hired a guy, and four months later, they fired him because he was useless. So here's Bob, 21 years old, when they make the transition to Major League Baseball, had just gotten his accounting degree, never had been to a Major League Baseball game until his second year with him. Never, never. And he is the chief financial officer of the Seattle Pilots in 1969. When you were talking to him, when he recalled it all, was it, what, what was he, could he laugh at it all back then? Or was he still, was it anger or pain? I mean, what were his emotions when he was well, telling you all I mean, these amazing I, things? Well, that's a good question. Uh, and, and honestly, he was a wide eyed kid. I mean, it was like, he was in, he was in heaven. It was like, he liked baseball. I mean, he played, you know, uh, sandlots and all that kind of stuff. He liked the game, but he never did play high school ball. He got cut his freshman year and never got a chance to play again for a lot of reasons that are explained in the book. But, uh, but he fell into this job. He had just quit a job that he hated and, and it was an internship in accounting while he was working on his degree. And he walked into this uh, business school where he was uh, working on this, uh, you know, he was working there at the business school to get his degree. And he looked at the bulletin board and a job for the AAA California Angels just happened to be on the bulletin board. That's how, and then he went and interviewed for it. He said, I like, I like baseball. I'll just go find out what this is about. And then he got hired. And within 12 months, he was the chief financial officer of the Angels baseball team. <laughs> so he, he was wide eyed. I mean, he felt like he was in heaven. It was like, I can't believe I have this job. And, you know, and he, and he was excited as heck because it was a brand new major league team. Dewey and Matt were, uh, Max were both guys that were pretty good to work for, but the surrounding people that they were bringing in really became kind of the story in this book. I mean, I've already talked about the chief financial officer they hired that got fired after, after four months. They hired a, their uh, public speaker guy who goes out and uh, speaks to all the community about uh, tickets and stuff. He was fired on opening day. He's, opening day, they're scrambling around on opening day. And everybody's, you know, trying to pull things together. They're still working on the stadium up there. They're putting stands together on opening day with walkie-talkies. And as the people come to the to the booth to buy a ticket, somebody on walkie-talkie says, Section 8, seats 4 and 5 in row 12. We just finished. You can sell that ticket. So they And they just painted the seats. People were sitting in painted seats. They, they were... They were ripping off, and a couple of guys ripped their pants open because they used cheap wood to try to get all this stuff done because they were underfunded. And, I mean, it was just one thing after another. So, anyway, this guy, their, their, their speaker guy, is sitting in his office while everybody else is scrambling around, looking ahead of this vintage comic book collection on his desk. When Dewey Soriano walks by, I think it's opening day, walks by and says, what are you doing? And the guy says, well, I've I got this great comic collection. You want to take a look at some of these? Oh. And Dewey Soriano fired him on the spot. Oh, man. So before the season even started, they had fired their, their chief community or, organizer and their uh, chief financial officer. And the, the season hadn't even started. And Marvin Milks, the guy that they brought from California, had already started kicking holes in deaths and doing weird stuff like that because he didn't like the way things were going. So it was uh, right from the get-go. It was like, man, 
this is chaos. We're going to have to scramble to make this work. So the whole story that Bob and Jim both tell, they they're work there together. Jim, Jim actually came out of another major league team, uh, San Francisco, but he was a young guy too. He was 29, but he had a few, few years under his belt. And they, they both met uh, on the first day of 1968 when they both were in the one year of startup to, to try to learn how to do stuff. And then they've been friends ever since. So these two guys got together and started talking about all these stories, about all these firings, about all these characters in suits and ties, you know, behind the screen of the, the, the curtain of the front office. And it's just full of stories that make you shake your head and roll your eyes. Now, besides those two guys, did you interview any other front office people with the old pilots uh, besides those two guys? No, because most of them are dead. Ooh. Uh, both of those guys are in there. Uh, well, let's see. Bob is 73 and Jim is 80-something. 80, 80 Dewey and Max uh, are dead. Bill Sears, who was a really good uh publicity marketing guy, he's dead. But there were several interviews conducted in the 80s with a number of these guys by a number of different people. Mm. So my my research went into finding all of those interviews done by various people. Plus, there's a couple of other books written about the, the pilots, but not from the standpoint of what was going on in the front office. Somebody wrote a book that's pretty good that gives a day-by-day -day breakdown of what was happening. Another, you know, each game and who played and what happened and yeah. kind of side stuff about what was happening. Another guy wrote a book about the politics of the stadium and, and why the stadium didn't happen. So there, there are lots of sources to go to because there's such an unusual one-year team. And, of course, Ball Four, written by Jim Bowden, was all about the 69 Pilots. Yep. So that, so that made them an immortal team. So there was lots of sources, but I had to kind of run those down to confirm some of the things that Bob and Jim were talking about or to kind of reaffirm really because they were there. I had to report what they remembered. And, and uh, uh, so there are other interviews by other people that are referenced in the book, but it's not a book about ball players, really. Yeah. It's a book about the organization from a completely different angle from the top down. Now, after the 69 season, the pilots ended up moving to Milwaukee. But before the move took place, did any other city have a shot at landing the pilots? Or was it always Milwaukee that had the inside track on getting the franchise? What's the story behind that? Uh, that that's a real interesting story. So, so it was becoming clear really early. In fact, the Sorianos, as early as May, figured out that they were in trouble. They, they knew they didn't have any other funding sources. They actually had to bring in a guy from uh, Cleveland to help fund the team to begin with. He had originally owned the Cleveland Indians and had tried to move, wanted to move the Cleveland Indians to Seattle four years earlier. Mm. But for one reason or another, that didn't pan out. So Major League Baseball got him, uh, Daly was his name, got him in touch with the Sorianos to purchase, the, you know, to purchase the Major League franchise because they didn't have enough money right at the start. I mean, that should have been a clue right there. Mm. They didn't have they didn't have money even to buy the team. Jeez. So they lined up with this guy in Chicago. Well, so he was asked if he wanted to put more money into the team to keep it from going bankrupt. And his answer was no. I, I'm just not seeing this as going to play out. I'm, we've got a stadium that's in complete disrepair. 
we've got a, a levy that passed, but and there's a lot, a lot of politics about the new stadium. That's not going to be done in any kind of time that's going to allow us to be good. I, I just can't, I, and he was vilified because he didn't put more money in here in Seattle at the time, but he was right. I mean, there was no way that was going to work. So the Sorianos started looking, and Major League Baseball, in their embarrassment, also started looking for other options. So there was options to turn the team into a nonprofit and have the citizens of Seattle buy the team. There were uh, local guys who wanted to buy the team, but they were in such debt, and, and the bank was calling the debt, so they couldn't pay the, they couldn't pay the debt off. You know, it was eight or nine, ten million dollars, and they just couldn't they couldn't pull it off. Then there was a team in uh, 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 Hunt, Lamar Hunt, in uh, Texas was trying to buy the team to bring another team into Texas. But by that time, by the time he got into the picture, the Sorianos had already been contacted by Bud Seelig's representatives in Milwaukee. And here's how, this is more speculation on my part, just kind of putting the pieces together. But here's how that played out. Soriano, uh, Bud Seelig was the major public stockholder of the 1965 Atlanta Braves, who went to, uh, I mean, the Milwaukee Braves who went to Atlanta in 1966, because Atlanta offered them a new stadium and a whole bunch of other stuff. Bud Seelig fought that tooth and nail, but the primary owners all wanted to make the sale because they were gonna make a lot of money off of it. So the team left and Bud lost that argument. Well, he immediately formed a group in 1965, 1966, to begin looking for another major league team. He had his eye on the Chicago White Sox because they were a failing franchise and weren't getting attendance and all kinds of stuff. So he and his group hosted a number of games during the 1968 season, 1968-1969 season, to bring the White Sox to play games in Milwaukee Stadium where the Braves used to play. And they were packed. They, I mean, everybody, so Bud made a deal, 1969, to buy the Chicago White Sox with the owners of the White Sox. They took the deal to the American League and the American League said, we're not gonna approve this. Chicago at the time was the, number, the second largest population city in America. And they said, we wanna keep an American League and a National League team here in Chicago. We're not gonna approve this sale. So Bud thought he had a deal in 1969 to buy Chicago. It fell through. And I suspect that Major League Baseball said to Bud, Keep your eyes open, though, because we've got a team in Seattle that's in trouble. Hang on, hang in there. Be waiting on the sidelines and be ready to pounce. Now, that's just speculation on my part. But given how hard he worked to keep the Braves, then how hard he worked to bring Chicago and all the connections that he made, he was an insider by that time. I mean, so he was making an inside pitch. Okay. And, and they uh, waited until nobody else in Seattle could buy the team. So there were no options there. The uh, Major League Baseball turned down the idea of a nonprofit team because they thought that would hurt the value of their team. And Bud had already started talking with the Sorianos by the time Lamar Hunt from Texas got into the picture. And the Sorianos had already kind of said, okay, we're, we're going to work with you on this. Okay. And what happened was the, the, the Major League owners would not approve 
the deal. They wanted Seattle to stay in Seattle because it would be too big of an embarrassment to the league. And they're thinking, well, geez, if we lose the Seattle team, they're going to have their powerful centers go and do the same thing that Symington said. So they said, we're not, we're, we, we can't make that happen. So the Sorianos in Milwaukee got together and said, okay, the only way this is going to work is if we declare bankruptcy. So let's just declare bankruptcy, and then you can buy the team out of bankruptcy. And that's exactly what happened. Rick, where can readers uh, uh, buy your book? Where is it available? It's on Amazon. It's on. Uh, uh, it's in Barnes and Noble. You can order it through Barnes and Noble. You can order it through uh, any independent bookstore uh, because they they have an offer. They have a way to get to it, and they'll know the way. All you have to do is say, "I want the book inside pitch," and they can order it. So, and at Costco in Seattle area, Costco has it, and they're contemplating whether to take it, you know, in a wider distribution. But right now, because it's a new book, they're uh, just in the Seattle area. So. Uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Costco. If you're in the Seattle area, nobody in your area is going to hear that. Uh, and then any independent bookstore. Rick, tell us about the sales your. Sales are going well. Yeah, Rick, uh, please tell us about your background. Where were you born and raised? Where were you educated? Well, I was. I was. I have a degree in journalism. Uh, I then went into the military right after uh, college. I was a public information officer and a propaganda officer in the military in the 70s. I got out of uh, the military in the early 70s. I then went to Ohio University, got a master's degree in interpersonal communication at, at Ohio University. Uh, and I, I was working in administration in colleges at the time to work my way to, through my degree and pay for my degree. So I stayed in higher education. I became a vice president of Pacific Lutheran University out here in the Northwest uh, by the end of my time in higher education. But at, right at the end, I was already working on my doctorate. My doctorate is from the University of Southern California in administration. So I had both a journalistic interest, and I'm a baseball fan, and a baseball interest, and I, Ball 4 is my favorite book, so the pilots were an interest. And I'm also really interested in management and administration. So that's why I fell into this book. All of those things were kind of in play when I started hearing Bob telling these stories in the middle of Africa. <laughs> and that's how it all came together. When you were growing up, who were your favorite baseball players, Rick? Well, when I was a kid, I, I lived in Los Angeles, south of Los Angeles, in Elsinore and Corona, California. And I was in L.A. area in 1958 when the Dodgers moved from Brooklyn to Los Angeles. And my first ball game was a doubleheader between the Los Angeles Dodgers in 1958 and the Milwaukee Braves. Wow. Who that year won the uh, National League pennant and won the World Series. Wow. But the Dodgers, who came in last, won both games of that World Series, of, of that doubleheader, 7 to 4 and 4 to 3. The pitchers were Don Drysdale, Warren Spawn, Lou Burdett, and Johnny Padres. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of coincidences. Can we? I'll tell you what. Oh, yeah. One of the things that really has surprised me: I have about three thousand followers on my on my author page on Facebook, and the kind of stuff that I'm learning. I, I was about a week away from final print on this book, and a guy contacted me on my Facebook page and say, said, "You know what? I know the guy whose mom helped take the." The Milwaukee became the Brewers 
just six days before the season started in 1970. They were the pilots until April 1st. On April 6th, they opened in Milwaukee as the Brewers. So they had the pilots' uniforms and no other uniforms. So they had to get the patches off of the pilots' uniforms and sew on Milwaukee patches. This guy said, I know the guy whose mom was the seamstress who sewed all those patches. You want to talk to him? So I said, well, sure. So I called the guy up. And, and the guy says, yeah, my grandma worked for the cleaners where all the sports teams got their stuff done. The brewers called her and said, we need to have somebody, uh, a seamstress. She says, well, my daughter's a seamstress, and it was this guy's mom. So they got all the uniforms, took them to his house, her house, did all the sewing, and she kept on with all the patches. Guess what happened to the patches? Where did it go? She kept all, she kept all the patches, and for her son, for her son's, Sandlot team. She gave them to all the moms, and the 1969 Major League Seattle Pilots patches took the field in 1970 on a sandlot <laughs> in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You imagine what they'd be I, worth in today's market? I mean, my goodness, unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. And I got—I could only get a paragraph in about that because the book was already almost done, and I couldn't make it so long that it was—you changed the pages. So I just not in a paragraph on that little story last question rick can we expect any future baseball books from you well if i fall into one like i did in this one you can but i don't think that's very likely i've, I've, I've actually written uh, another book already uh, before the baseball book but i knew i couldn't uh, get it published and make any money off of it so i thought well i'll do the baseball book first because i think this is a sellable story i think this is an interesting story and my other book is on early childhood development and how important that is Ooh. to the to the future of america and i'm going to go back and, and start uh, working on that and try to get it out here in the next probably few months you know rick when those books come out please let me know i'll i'd love to have you on my show again we can talk of we can promote those books okay rick well thank you i appreciate it i, I have a feeling that won't be as fun as this one doesn't matter. I mean, especially when considering the way the country is now, the, the the development of our youth, I think it's becoming a very paramount issue, you know, the way oh, this country is I'll going. So I think it's probably be, very apropos. So whenever your book comes out, yeah, so when your book does come out, please let me know. I, w I would love to talk to you about it, Rick. Really, I would love to Great, talk I'll, to you. I'll do that. I will do that. Rick, you take care, and Rick, be safe, okay? Be safe. Yeah, we are. We are. You too. Thank, Thank you very much. Goodbye. Uh, uh. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show, where I will be interviewing hockey author Stephen LaRouche. Thank you, and good night. Uh -huh.